Welcome to the Act and Unwind podcast, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. I'm your host, Eric Cohn. I want to thank you for listening and ask that if you're listening to us on our website, navigate right now to the show notes for this episode, where you will find a link to subscribe directly to Act and Unwind at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else where you listen to find podcasts. And if you like this program, please leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts so as to help more people find our show. This week, I'm joined by Sam Gregg, Acton's Director of Research, and Dan Huger, Librarian and Research Associate here at Acton. Today, we'll discuss the State of the Union, both the actual state and the speech, and President Biden's nominee to the Supreme Court. But first, let's go to Ukraine, which is exactly what Vladimir Putin has done. So since we last talked, uh, based on what I think we would all agree is largely a fabricated pretext, Vladimir Putin has sent uh, military forces into Ukraine. Uh, Would it give the proviso that getting accurate information on what is going on there is incredibly difficult? As as Dan and I were discussing before we started the the program today, you don't know if what you're watching is real or if your video of this ghost of Kiev fighter pilot is actually taken from a video game. So... It is a little difficult to figure out exactly what is going on. But I think I can say this with some confidence. It is not going as well for Russia as I think they believed that it would. The resistance fighting in the Ukraine has been um, somewhat remarkable, including the leadership of President Zelensky. And... A lot of people believe that within a couple of days, they would be in the capital city of Kiev. They are not. They are attacking it, but they have not taken it over. They have not decapitated the government of Ukraine in uh, with the speed that many people thought that they would. So there's a whole lot wrapped up in what is going on. But Sam, I'll go to you first. Is this, uh, is this the end of the post-Cold War world order? Is it the end of the post-World War II world order? Is it the end of both? Or are we overrating the significance of what Putin and Russia are doing right now in even talking about it as the end of some kind of world order? Well, that's a question which I suspect, Eric, many people are thinking about today because it's very clear that Given that this is uh, the first large-scale employment of the military to pursue war against a sovereign nation on this type of scale for quite some time in Europe, it's inevitable that many people would be reflecting upon that type of question. So I think it means a couple of things. One is we are seeing a type of resurgence of geopolitics. And by that I mean the idea that essentially international relations and uh, the conduct of affairs between nations is moving in a direction which is much more actually in some respects like that of the the second half of the 19th century and the first half of the 20th century, whereby international affairs becomes orientated around 
nations pursuing geopolitical goals. Putin, President Putin, is pursuing his vision of what he thinks Russia's role in this new geopolitical environment should be. And it's not a, it's not a vision that he's just made up. There's ample precedent for this in the history of Russia in the late night from the 19th century onwards of Russian expansionism. It's driven by a particular vision of the, Russia's relationship to the West, etc. And, you know, of course, that is accompanied by the fact that he's, a, for all, in purpose, all intents and purposes, a dictator uh, who has some significant domestic problems that he's trying to address. He's also 69 years old. If he wants to pursue this particular vision of the world, then, you know, he's running out of time to do that, etc. Uh, so there's a lot of internal things that are going on in Russia that are playing into this. And I think that's going to play out even more over the next uh, few weeks, maybe months, as we see how domestic Russian opinion and the population reacts to what Putin has done. But the other geopolitical side of this, of course, is it's not just Russia that people are paying attention to. They're also looking at China. So China is behaving much more like a geopolitical actor as well. So I think what this points to in a broader sense is the idea of a rules-based international order, which was the accepted wisdom after the Cold War and that was fueled to a certain extent by books like Francis Fukuyama's The End of History and The Last Man, etc., which posited that liberal democracy and market economies were really the only alternative left in a post-communist world. Uh, I, I think that that is being really thrown open to question now. And it's not just what's happening in Russia. It's also the way that countries like China and India, and to a certain extent the United States and different European countries are now interacting with each other and viewing the world from an international relations perspective. Dan, same question to you. Is this the end of a post-Cold War world order, a post-World War II world order, uh, or are we over-interpreting this? I mean, this, re this reflects a failure to integrate Russia into the post-World Order, post-Cold War order. Um, there's a way in which <clears throat> what we're seeing, like what we're seeing, Russia invaded the Ukraine in 2014. They never left. They incorporated the Crimea into the Russian Federation. They um, have continued to sponsor uh, quasi-independent republics of Donetsk and Luhansk in Ukraine's east. And that war has been going on ever since. There have been shelling. There have been people dying every month on that frontier since 2014. What we are seeing is Russia trying to bring about an end to that conflict after um, years of stalemate and sort of failed diplomatic solutions. Um, so this, uh, this 
reflects, on the one hand, a complete failure of that system to ever really integrate Russia. This is not the first time Russia has done – this is not the first nation that Russia has done this to. There is, a, you know, um, uh, an independent republic, uh, quasi-independent republic in Moldova sponsored by Russia. There are two in Georgia, in, in Ots- uh, South Ossetia and Abkhazia. This is a sort of standard way that Russia has tried to counter the integration of its neighbors into that order that it itself was never integrated into. What we are seeing, interestingly, though, as we talk about the breakdown of this order, is a set of financial sanctions coordinated, the likes of which I don't think we've ever seen against a country of Russia's size and importance to the international economy. So there's a way in which that international order, at least at least on the financial aspect, is stronger and more coordinated than ever. And this was a little slow coming over the week as, as this conflict has unfolded. But those sanctions have gotten tougher and tougher to the point that um, the ruble is down something like 30%. Um, and when it was already sort of facing a, a crisis and inflation, you know, worse than what we've been experiencing in the United States. And the Russian stock market is not open this morning and it does not look to open for the foreseeable future. So there's a sort of there's a sort of mixed legacy here. At one point over the weekend, the value of the ruble was less than the Roebuck, which is the currency in the online video game for kids, Roblox, the actual tradable value of that currency in a fake world was more than what the ruble was. So that, that uh, your point is well taken there. The, I, so much of what you said, Dan, I, I just wonder to what extent incorporating Russia into that world order would have taken time, right? You know, so from the fall of the Berlin Wall, uh, through the 1990s, um, you know, it, it kind of in the same way that we talk about Ukraine, that the, some of the people who are detractors and making more pro-Russia, pro-Putin arguments are saying that, oh, Ukraine is, uh, you know, it's not a real democracy. It's corrupt in its own right. Well, same is true of Russia. The early stages of any nation like that are going to be difficult. To what extent did we have enough time and was there enough time to get Russia incorporated? Because I think we uh, and tell me if you disagree with this. The Yeltsin years and the Putin years are different, right? Um, Yeltsin certainly not without his faults. Uh, but the and, – and a lot of economic turmoil during those years as well. And I listened to a, um, a broadcast of This American Life on the way to the office this morning where one of the things that people in Russia will talk about is how – um, in a way very similar to the way that the Chinese regard the Chinese Communist Party, they've delivered stability, right? Putin has delivered economic stability when the 90s was a very difficult period. Now, you could say, you could make the argument that that is the result of bad leadership and the way that the president of the United States always gets more blame for the state of the economy than he probably deserves and too much praise for it when it's good. You can blame that on Yeltsin to an extent, but a lot of these things, just the reality was coming out of decades of Soviet communist rule, it was going to take time. 
was there enough time before Vladimir Putin comes to power? Clearly, I think, with an agenda that did not want to see that kind of integration, which leads to the operations going on right now, where he is trying to restore some sense of Russia's imperial power and the territories that they once possessed. Now, be that as the Soviet Union, be that prior to the Soviet Union, there's a lot of different threads seeming to run through Putin's thought here. But was it did we have enough time for that even to be possible? I mean, we'll never know. Um, is 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 the first is the first answer to that question. The second is is that uh, we have former Soviet successor states that were successfully integrated into the into the international order. Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania are prime examples. Um, now, that failure to integrate into the inter- international order is not merely the international order's failure. It is also the failure of the Russian Federation. Uh, It is also, you know, it takes work by nations to join the international community. And it also takes a certain receptivity to the international community. And I think both of those were lacking in those early formative days. If you look at our attitudes to, let's say, the defeated Germans and the Japanese after after, uh, World War II, those are very different we were very invested in bringing those into the international order. How much of that is a consequence of the way that that end came about? I mean, the end of the Cold War was the end of a Cold War where there was proxy fighting, but there really was obviously nothing to the scale of the Second World War where Japan was destroyed, Germany was destroyed. It, it was just the circumstances are radically different. It seems like they're better, though. In yes. the sense that Moscow's not bombed out. Um, now, whether they're, you know, whether Russian institutions could make that sort of transition or not, you know, that's that's something we'll never know. Um, but I think I think um, it's it's time to reflect, particularly when it looks like we're going to have to deal with this, if not with Russia, with. Other successors, if if Russia comes out of this war weaker, less able to exert its influence, we'll have an opportunity to, to integrate some of these successor states into the post Cold War uh, international order, and we should we should look to learn some lessons for our failures in Russia and in other sort of successor states, as well as look to some of our successes um, in that project. Another thing to think about here is you mentioned the Baltic states, Eric. What's interesting about the Baltic states, as well as countries like Poland, <clears throat> the Czech Republic, Slovakia, Hungary, etc., uh, let's keep in mind that these countries always had a Western orientation. And if you go to countries like Estonia or Lithuania, that's very, very clear from the moment you're there, or Poland for that matter. There's a very, very clear Western orientation, which was true under the Tsars, which was also true under the Soviet Union. That's one of the reasons why the Soviets deported large numbers of people from some of these countries, made concentrated efforts to destroy the cultural, political, economic and religious elites in many of these countries because there was a sense, there was an awareness on the part of the first the Tsars and then, of course, the, the Soviets that 
the natural orientation of many of these countries was not towards Moscow. It was towards the West. And you even see that in Ukraine itself, right? Because the Western part of Ukraine has a much stronger, let's call it Western orientation, insofar as that it has a larger percentage of Catholics, Uniate Catholics. You have large numbers of people from that part of Ukraine who have gone and studied in the West and then gone back, etc. So I think this is important because it tells us that some countries are just culturally more orientated in particular ways rather than others. And that's very hard, I think, for a good number of people in international relations, especially those who tend to think about these things in terms of supranational institutions, but also in terms of economics, that's often hard for them to get their minds around. It's very hard for them, in my experience, for them to understand the importance of culture in the way that that drives international relations. Samuel Huntington was, of course, the the scholar in his book, The Clash of Civilizations, who brought that out who said that for all the talk about international liberal order, you can't underplay or underestimate the role of culture in shaping the political orientation of countries, an orientation that transcends the particular regime that happens to be in power. You know, in in, of course in the early 1990s, there was an attempt by Russian reformers to shift the country towards a more explicitly Western orientation. You had economic reformers there who tried to liberalize the economy. You had uh, what you might call liberal-minded people who were trying to develop a sense of constitutionalism. But the the roots for those ideas, the, the, the cultural resonance of these things was very weak in the context of Russia in a way that it was not as weak in countries like Estonia, Lithuania, Poland, Hungary, etc. One of the die markers of that difference is uh, membership in NATO. And this is a huge issue in this whole conflict, that much of Vladimir Putin's list of grievances is oriented around NATO. One of the demands that Putin was making prior to this and and subsequently is, well, first, that Ukraine would not be a part of NATO, which is the kind of thing that he wants an admission of out loud, but implicitly was not going to happen for a whole host of reasons. But he has also said that he's asking for the clock to be turned back on NATO to 1997 so that those a lot of those states that you just mentioned, Sam, would also be then out of out of NATO. Is this is this a the first real testing moment for NATO, I mean, at least in a couple of decades. Um, And do you think, I'll throw this out to either of you that wants to jump on the question, do you think NATO is in any meaningful way up to this? I mean, the United States, of course, is a huge part of what happens in NATO. Uh, But we've just had a number of years, you heard Trump going on about this endlessly, about how the other nations in NATO don't do their part. Um, There has been the same kind of undermining of national institutions that we talk about in this program regularly has been happening to even functional and I would argue good 
uh, international institutions like NATO. Is this a true testing point for them? And do you think that they're prepared to handle it well? And of course, and, and hovering over all of this is people have been speculating, well, you know, does Putin stop at Ukraine or does he move on any of those other states that used to be a part of the Soviet Union? Because if he does... Uh, there's an immediate invocation of Article 5 of the NATO treaty, which means that all other NATO nations will have to come to their defense. You would think that Vladimir Putin wouldn't want that. But then again, all of the smart set out there didn't think he was actually going to do what he's doing right now in Ukraine. Well, a couple of things <clears throat> on, along those lines. Uh, it, Donald Trump's critique of European countries – not spending what they promised they would spend, uh, I think has turned out was was actually accurate, right? Because they were not spending. They were assuming the protection of the American nuclear umbrella for a long period of time. That's a matter – and that's a clear matter of fact, right? I mean we, we knew that before Donald Trump drew attention to it. I think the question well, Obama is – Obama talked about it. Obama critiqued the uh, European countries on these grounds as well. And look what Germany's just done. Germany has just reversed a position of diplomacy, 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 crypto-passivism as an approach to uh, military affairs by saying we are now going to spend – what we said we would spend, and we're going to send weapons to Ukraine as well. I mean, that's an extraordinary turnaround um, on the part of a country that was once very central to NATO, but became less so because of, let's call it, ambiguous attitudes on the part of Germany towards Russia and the regime that happened to be in power there. One of the things you'll see too, and on, with it has been interesting to follow along with, is some of this response has been national. Um, right. Some of this response has been coordinated through NATO, and yet still others have been coordinated with the European Union. And none of those things overlap exactly. So one of the, one of the things to watch, I think, as this conflict unfolds is – where Europeans put more of their own organizational energy. And I think Sam's right that you've seen a sort of reinvigorated European response, whether that's channeled through the institutions of NATO or whether that's channeled through the European Union or through the actions of individual states is, is, is kind of a developing thing right now and uh, will, uh, I think, I think loom, loom large for the future of Europe. Did you notice that the initial response was overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly from nation states? They were the ones that took the lead on this. It's only in the past couple of days that the European Union, as an organization, has been saying, we will do the following things. And there's another dimension to this, which I think Dan referred to earlier, which is the financial response. If anything, in some, in some respects, the financial response – from, from the Federal Reserve, from the European Central Bank, from different central banks coordinating their efforts around the world in terms of laying down some clear markers that effectively are, will block Russia financially from the global financial system. I find that fascinating that financial power is being deployed in this particular way to an extent that we have not seen for a very long time and on a scale which I don't think we've ever seen. How meaningful is that 
financial stuff, though, and I ask that because you know we've there there are various uh, ways of talking about Vladimir Putin, and I want to get to some of that uh, conversation, domestic conversation about Russia and Putin in a moment here, but. Putin had to assume that this would be the logical consequence of taking this action. I I have a hard time believing that he wasn't expecting this and seemingly would be willing to absorb those financial repercussions. I mean, it's not as if Russia is a particularly strong economy in the first place. It's it's essentially the size of Italy, I believe, Um, despite being an enormous nation. Uh, You know, the 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 slash kind of jokey line about it, that it is a gas station with an army. Uh, He had to know that this was coming. So if he had assumedly already factored that in and thought this is still worth it, how meaningful are those financial actions in reality? Well, I think a lot will depend upon how long these things stay in place and whether the circle around Putin start to really feel the very direct implications of this. When, for example, they find that they can't invest as they used to think they would be able to do so easily in Western companies. Uh, When they can't travel abroad as, as easily as they thought they would be able to. Or even when things like the stock market opens up in Moscow and people suddenly discover that the value of their stocks, their assets has declined considerably and that the value of the ruble has also declined precipitously. Now, I think you're right, Eric. Putin is not a stupid man. He must have known that this would be at least part of the response of Western countries to what he's done in Ukraine. Now, I I have to think that he's calculated that either because of a type of Russian stoicism that's been around for centuries and or because of his grip on the country itself through what is effectively a police state that he runs, that he can ride this out. And maybe he's also assuming that because he has, as you say, the gas station, that that is a way for him to wield considerable influence in in different ways. And we'll also see how easily Russia can get around some of the financial sanctions that are in place. I mean, countries know how to do this. They know how to get around these sanctions if they need to. So that's, it's, I think it's going to be interesting to see over time how effective those financial sanctions are because I think assuming that it's going to bring everything to a stop in Russia or its ability to interact economically with the rest of the world, that's way too early to tell right now. I think, I think you know, sanctions were expected. This particular array, I don't think so. Other than the, the energy sector, which... Europeans have been very hesitant to place any sanctions on. These are pretty comprehensive. Um, Russia was in a pretty good place to weather sanctions. Uh, you know what I think what they were expecting. They had a jet. You know I think eighteen uh, percent debt to GDP ratio, which is very low. Um, they had you know. Uh, quite a few uh, foreign reserves, although these new sanctions have affected that in all sorts of ways. So, I mean, there, there's a very real way in which we're already seeing, you know, these precipitous decline in the ruble. I think, I think the stock market is going to be chaos. Um, and I think this might have unintended negative consequences of actually causing 
causing uh, my, my fear is that the Russians will be more brutal than otherwise in their offensive if they think the time is limited. And then, of course, there's the question of if the economic, you know, the the goal of most policymakers in these economic sanctions is to limit Russia's warfighting ability and to uh, promote a, a a quicker diplomatic resolution of this in a, in a Russian withdrawal. But there are some figures in the foreign policy figures in the West who see this as an opportunity to destabilize um, Putin's regime in Russia, which is a, a horrific regime, but of which there's no guarantees that any sort of successor state brought about by any sort of general economic collapse will be any better. And it's a very dangerous thing to squeeze too tight. And these sanctions also, they affect regular people. It's, it's a common standard in international law that, you know, the sort of indiscriminate shelling and bombing, a lot of which is going on in the Ukraine today, is, is terrible and is atrocious and is indeed criminal. However, we don't tend to view economic sanctions in the same way, although they, in, in a similar way, affect a population very indiscriminately. Um, this will this will have ripple effects in the Russian economy for a long time, uh, just as the Russian invasion in the Ukraine will have long term impacts. Again, regardless of outcome, at this point, there's been a tremendous amount of damage done, lives lost, persons displaced. Um, this is this is going to reverberate for for at least a generation, and it's a tragedy. I suppose it is entirely possible that Putin had miscalculated on the impact of sanction actions like this because it does seem, as I said at the onset, that the ease of what he was going to be able to accomplish in Ukraine, he seemed to have somewhat miscalculated on that. It, the resistance fighting that has gone on there, the resistance to the Russian army and uh, military forces coming in has been, you know, again, I, I want to caution that you know we are in the midst of the fog of war here and we do not know the reliability of all information coming out of a war-torn region like this. Uh, but Again, I think we can say with a good amount of confidence that it is not going as easily or as well for the Russians as we expected. And we'd be remiss if we didn't mention um, President Vladimir Zelensky, who has just kind of become a, a remarkable hero in this development, especially when you put into context his story that this is a guy who is an actor and a comedian who played the president of Ukraine on a television show before running to become the president of Ukraine. Um, if you could, in your mind, envision some uh, parallels between that and the election of another person in another country, I'll let you draw those conclusions on your own. But the, the what we've seen from him to me has been – true legend stuff of him taking up arms, of him uh, in response to the United States offer to evacuate him, saying, you know, I need ammunition. I don't need a ride. Uh, even if some of this stuff is, is in a way contrived, it is still remarkable to witness. And for the kind of person, given his background, that you might not expect to turn into this kind of a statesman, 
it has been, to me, just an amazing thing to watch and a heartening thing to watch. And I'm sure it is incredibly meaningful as well for the Ukrainian people. Well, in some senses, we're witnessing another phenomena, which is uh, this is a, a war. It's not a police action or anything like that. It's a war in which a European war in which social media is clearly going to play a major role. You mentioned the fog of war, Eric. That's a very real thing. It's also clear that both Russia and Ukraine are going to try and present an image of themselves, right? I mean, of course they're going to do that as part of the nature in which you win a war. And Ukraine is doing a much better job of that right now. We're only three or four days in. This is this is by no means over. But Ukraine, I think, is doing a much better job at this. And also because they are clearly the ones whose territory has been violated. As Dan said, this has been going on since... 2012, 2014, remember when Putin took over Crimea? And clearly, the Ukrainian government has, I think, done a very effective job at social media, and it's partly because they have a much better story to tell because it's very clear that when you are invaded, you are usually the ones who are much able, much better positioned to present yourselves as the ones who have been violated, the ones who who are the victims, the ones who have been, whose sovereign territory has been taken over, infiltrated by a foreign power. So I think this is one of the things that as we go forward, the social media war is going to heat up and get more and more sophisticated. And this is really, in some respects, the first war in which we're going to see that play out on such a scale. Uh, And I think that's going to be something that will go forward when it comes to these types of situations in the future. Yeah, I know people who are saying that a lot of the information that they are getting about what is happening in Ukraine, they are getting from TikTok. That is the vehicle through which a lot of this has been communicated. And something interesting also that I saw over the weekend that um, I think is just an incredible story uh, and, a, and a marker of how you know, we say all the time that we live in a different world. And usually when we say that, we talk in a, we're talking about how we perceive it to be a worse world. Um, but I am, as, as people who listen to this program will know, uh, joke all the time that the rule about Twitter is don't tweet – uh, but you had a official in the Ukrainian government tweet at Elon Musk uh, saying, while you try to colonize Mars, Russia trying to occupy Ukraine, while your rockets successfully land from space, Russian rockets attack Ukrainian civil people. We ask you to promote, uh, provide Ukraine with Starlink stations and to address um, uh, uh, sane Russians to stand. Uh, basically asking him to this uh, constellation of satellite internet that has been launched as part of um, the outer space SpaceX uh, activities of Elon Musk. Within hours of this guy tweeting at Elon Musk, uh, Musk replied, Starlink service is now active in Ukraine, more terminals en route. I think that's just a remarkable story and the kind of thing that if we were relying on probably any government agency to do this, we'd be talking weeks. And Elon Musk has been able to do it in a matter of hours. And it doesn't matter what you think about Elon Musk. I have mixed opinions on the man myself, but it is a different world. And I think this is an example of how it is a different world in a remarkable way and a positive, remarkable way. 
I'm going to be the downer here. I mean, I, th- I think I think you're. I mean, there there are individual acts of heroism that have been able to be highlighted. There have also been torrents of bad information. Related. Well, misinformation. An act of misinformation. <laughs> you know, you have literally, you know. Misinformation you have, related to Russia, Dan? Seriously? Yeah. And, 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 and misinformation related to Ukraine. You have literally footage from, you know, uh, flight simulation video games, be, you know, you know, purporting itself to be, you know, Ukrainian fighters shooting down Russians. You have, you know, all sorts of sort of apocryphal tales uh, arising uh, to defend, you know, everybody's sort of claims and narratives. Uh, Lord Acton, you know, early in the 20th century, he gave a lecture in which he said, you know, outward report and uh, uh, common report and outward seeming are poor substitutes for the truth uh, as the initiated know it. And he was talking about, you know, it was just then in the early 20th century that people were beginning to uncover the true causes of the Franco-Prussian War 30 years earlier. And we will have a similar sort of analysis to play. There's also been a disturbing way in which a lot of this has been weaponized for political ends online, where you have, uh, as uh, uh, Van Cash Rao once said in a wonderful essay uh, on the Internet of Beefs, that meat space is just a source of material to be deployed online. That there's a way in which people are exploiting tragedy for their own sort of political ends to get attention. Um, and it's really, you know, it's one of those those degrading, you know, war is just a degrading, you know, is a degrading phenomena for humanity in general. And the internet seems to be putting its own new spin on that. It's been interesting, actually, in that regard, Dan, to see how so many people have been taking Ukraine, what's happening in Ukraine, and then building their own pet issue around it. So you've seen people tweeting that, well, this proves that Brexit was a terrible idea. And then you have people tweeting, well, this proves that Brexit was a fantastic idea. You have people saying, this proves that Donald Trump was right. Other people saying, this proves that Donald Trump was wrong. You see people talking about uh, <laughs> uh, things like, well, this, this, is, this is my particular hobby horse, which I'm going to attach to this particular issue. So this is, it's, it's, it's a reflection of just how social media is a, a, such a double-edged sword. On the one hand, it's, you know, it's really interesting. We're learning all sorts of things that would have taken us a lot longer to find out uh, 10, 20, 30 years ago. But the sheer torrent of information, which means that we're going to be sorting through a lot of things, which is true and false, the sheer amount of misinformation, the sheer amount of propaganda, and the sheer amount of weaponizing this particular issue for my pet cause online is going to make discerning what's really going on and how this happened in the first place and where things are going to go in the future, in some respects, a much more complicated exercise. Uh, Certainly that kind of propaganda around war is the kind of thing that has happened plenty of times before. The thing that the internet makes different is that it increases the rapidity at which this comes at you and does make it harder to separate out the signal from the noise. Uh, But I think it is worth stating that this is not 
something new by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, we engaged in plenty of propaganda around the Second World War, as did other nations that were involved in it. It may have gotten uh, more advanced, but it certainly moves faster and it gets to people more immediately. And that is definitely a marked difference. I think the clearest example to me, Sam, of the uh, kind of thing that you were talking about uh, comes from uh, the founder of the 1619 Project, Nicole oh, Hannah-Jones, yes. who uh, just yesterday shared this insight. What if I told you Europe is not a continent by definition, but a geopolitical fiction to separate it from Asia? And so the alarm about uh, European or civilized or first world nation being invaded is a dog whistle to tell us we should care because they are like us. I mean, talk about taking something that you clearly do not understand very well and forcing that square peg through the round hole of the way that you look at absolutely everything that happens in the world. So yes, certainly that kind of thing is happening out there. Well, it also reflects, and that reflects, uh, that tweet, I saw it as well, reflects deep cultural ignorance. It reflects the, a, a refusal to look at things like, well, you know, there is such a thing as Western civilization. These, even more specifically, there's a thing called European civilization. It is different from other cultures and different from other civilizations. And that's not just a question of geography. That's something that is a the cultural question which transcends in many respects national borders and some of these geopolitical divisions that we're talking about uh, today. But what's also interesting, I think, in that regard is that uh, isn't it interesting that in Europe where we've had – and parts of the United States where we've had a lot of people tearing down Western civilization, saying how bad it is and how terrible it is, and yet now we see a lot of people, some of the same people even saying, well, this is a defense of, of our values. This is a defense of the things that we consider to be important. So the shift in the rhetoric, the shift in the way that people talk about these things, magnified, of course, by social media – it's quite remarkable. I think that is a good moment to move to uh, one area of this conversation that I feel we must touch on because uh, it has stuck out to me. And that is the way that what is transpiring vis-a-vis Russia and Ukraine right now to me reveals in a way I don't know that I fully appreciated prior the corruption that has been happening on the American political right that I, in a way, am not surprised of a general ethos of kind of Taftianism reasserting itself. There is, you know, as with a lot of these things, there's a long history to a reticence to want to get involved in foreign affairs like this, going all the way back to George Washington's farewell address, if not prior to that. But what I have been... In a way, I've been stunned by and almost feel like an idiot for being stunned by the adoption of clearly uh, the talking points of Russia and Vladimir Putin by some figures on the right. I think first and foremost among them, Tucker Carlson, who has basically been doing a program that should air on RT and not on Fox News, that he has been adopting just blatantly pro-Russian arguments. And I, it's one of these situations where, you know, 
you'd be tempted to make the kind of to look at on well on Russia's side on Ukraine's side and you, this is where you get the point that I brought up earlier of people saying you know oh Ukraine is corrupt it's not a very good democracy and all of that and I'm reminded of the line from Bill Buckley talking about the Soviet Union, that to suggest the United States and the Soviet Union are to be compared is to say that a man who pushes an old lady into the path of an oncoming bus and a man who pushes an old lady out of the path of an oncoming bus are simply men who push old ladies around. There is a moral calculus that is either being ignored or just not made. And I am, I want to say I'm shocked. And then when I say I'm shocked by the extent to that, I think this has revealed that kind of corruption on the American political right. I feel like a fool for saying it and not having seen that this was transpiring so clearly until this point in time. Well, it's also created a lot of dilemmas for those who have been embracing a more nationalist approach to different things because we suddenly discover that uh, nationalism can go both ways. I mean, I happen to think patriotism is a very important value, a very important virtue. I don't like supranational institutions. I don't like the EU. I don't like the United Nations. I don't like any of those things. But patriotism, love of country is something that should be valued. But we're discovering that when nationalism takes on particular faces and, and forms, then it gets much harder and much more difficult to talk about these things in a serious way. Another way in which we can talk about this, of course, is that have you noticed that the uh, Russian Orthodox patriarch has come out in a very strong way in supporting what Putin is doing? Have we noticed that? Now, that's what I think some integralists would like. That's the sort of vision of church-state relations that they would like. They would like this particular vision of the world. And now they're discovering, well, it's not so pretty when it's practiced in particular ways. And maybe there's something fundamentally problematic about it that that should raise questions about those conservatives who've embraced that particular agenda. There's also an attraction and seductiveness to power. And I was thinking of, of all people, Joyce Carol Oates brought this out, um, who famously has bad tweets. But she was talking about how this is sort of a theme in Russian literature, that you have an infatuation with Napoleon um, by, uh, you know, in crime and punishment among sort of the, you know, the, uh, the, the nihilists, um, you know, as someone who exercises arbitrary power in will. And there's a sense, there's a freedom in that, a sort of disordered freedom of, of arbitrary power that some people celebrate. And you see it also, you know, in Tolstoy, in War and Peace, and Napoleon is this, is this figure that looms large. And I think, you know, um, Putin is for some, you know, it's, 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 it's the outlet for that Napoleon complex. It is, you know, there are a lot of people that don't believe, as Lord Acton did, that power corrupts, that in fact that, you know, power is what does and what should rule the world. And when they see someone exercising power and brutality, um, unencumbered by any sort of moral restraint and unbothered by the censure of the international community, that's something that the id deep inside of them celebrates. And that's a very 
unhealthy impulse. And I think it exists on the right and the left and is a temptation that exists for all people. But I think you are seeing that in the right right now. The Sam is, I think, correct that this poses a particular dilemma for the self-proclaimed nationalists. In you know, my own reading of Yoram Hazoni's argument for nationalism is basically uh, what Sam had articulated, that it is contra um, the supranational organizations, that the nation state is the ideal building block for the world, that it should be made up of nation states. And I think the clear implication there is nation states with sovereign borders and their own sovereignty. And the silence of a lot of those people about the plight of Ukraine, a sovereign nation who has been invaded by another nation, um, is telling, I think. And to go back again, to what uh, Sam had brought up of the way that people are shoehorning their own individual agenda and the things that they are, their own parochial politics into all of this. A perfect example of it is Tucker Carlson's opening monologue from his program uh, one of the nights last week where he says, it might be worth, worth asking yourself since it is getting pretty serious, what is this really about? Why do I hate Putin so much? Has Putin ever called me a racist? Has he threatened to get me fired for disagreeing with him? Has he shipped every middle-class job in my town to Russia? Did he manufacture a worldwide pandemic that wrecked my business and kept me indoors for two years? Is he teaching my children to embrace racial discrimination? Is he making fentanyl? Is he trying to snuff out Christianity? Does he eat dogs? It, it is such an unbelievable. And for all I know, the last one, he might eat dogs. I don't actually know. But it, this is just such a juvenile line of argument that has absolutely, to me, nothing whatsoever to do with the question of what is happening with Russia and Ukraine and is entirely an attempt to distract from that reality by shoehorning it into because Vladimir Putin, who, you know, has had journalists killed, has had political opposition leaders killed, has had people poisoned with radioactive poison, um, who is a former KGB agent. Um, because he's never called me a racist, then I should be on Vladimir Putin's side is such a childish and juvenile way to approach it that, again, I want to say that I'm shocked by this, but I feel foolish every time those words come out of my mouth. Well, the other thing, of course, is that it's entirely possible to say things like, well, I think the government's COVID response has been mishandled. I don't like CRT. I don't like, uh, I don't like all those diff lots of different things. But I also think that Vladimir Putin is a menace, <laughs> a deep problem. I mean, you can hold all these views. It's At the not, same time. They're, they're not somehow mutually exclusive. And of course, Putin's behavior can't be excused by bad things that have happened in the United States. I mean, this is just very bad reasoning. Or can be excused by bad things that are happening in Canada, which you see this comparison going on as right. well, as to say what Justin Trudeau is doing in Canada, where we all talked about this on the last program. And Sam, your piece that we had in the Detroit News last week addresses this directly, that what Trudeau did in Canada invoking the Emergencies Act was bad. But it is also worth noting that they stopped using the Emergencies Act. Now, you can be outraged about the utilization of that, but to say in any way that this is comparable to Putin and what he has done either in Russia or in attacking Ukraine is just ludicrous. And anyone making that argument, I think, should be ashamed. This is a seductive and an old argument, though. When I heard that Tucker Sagman, of course, I remembered Muhammad Ali 
who said, no Viet Cong ever called me a racial slur redacted, which was the same sort of argument and an argument that's often celebrated to this day by many people. There's a lot more that we'll have to uh, – a lot more to talk about about this and we'll have more time to do it on future shows. And we are running long on this episode with, of course, this being such an important issue. So I will uh, go ahead and drop our final topic of the nominee of Kataji Brown-Jackson to the Supreme Court. We'll address that later and treat it like the afterthought that it was at its own announcement. And just very quickly – Deal with uh, tomorrow, March 1st, is the State of the Union. Let's handle that uh, this way. I will pose the same question to all of us. Dan, the State of the Union is what? Rough. Um, But not bad. We have seen, you know, there's continuing economic problems with inflation. We're seeing increased labor force participation, which is good. We have new foreign policy challenges. Um, These seem to be being handled better by the Biden administration than the Afghanistan withdrawal. And uh, low bar, low bar. But, you know, we we have we have we have seen a level of professionalism from this White House in dealing with the Ukraine that we did not see in Afghanistan. whether whether he's up to the task is is yet to be determined. There's a lot of challenges ahead. Um, there's, I mean, as we as we've been talking about this in terms of how um, the war in the Ukraine has been sort of weaponized in the American culture war. This is an enduring problem, and this is a problem that President Biden had hoped to address, at least explicitly, saying that he wanted an end to this sort of divisiveness. We have not seen sincere efforts to do that with this administration. Um, This is not to grant moral legitimacy to all of President Biden's critics, but there have been opportunities for a sort of national reconciliation that have not been seized. And that is that is a real, real, real challenge and uh, one that I hope he addresses in the State of the Union. Sam, the State of the Union is what? An address that should go back to the way it used to be done, which is when the president would issue basically a report, a letter that would go to Congress, which uh, he is effectively – Uh, obliged to do, right, under under the U.S. Constitution, Article 2, Section 3, Clause 1, the president, quote, shall from time to time give to Congress information of the State of the Union and recommend to their consideration such measures as he shall judge necessary and expedient. Presidents used to write these letters. There would be a lot of formal documentation attached to it. Now, of course, I think they've essentially become a media circus and you see, you know, you have these things whereby they count how long there are standing ovations and how many standing ovations there are for. So I, I, I find these things, this exercise at least, uh, relatively meaningless. Presidents have often used them to try and outline an agenda. But <clears throat> I, in terms of what doing, what they were, they're supposed to do, what they were always intended to do, uh, I think it's an exercise that could well learn something from how it was done in the past. 
So Sam took my hobby horse, which is that I can't stand the State of the Union, and we should also, I should only amend Sam's remarks to say that as with so many terrible things in the history of the presidency, this is another one that we can blame on Woodrow Wilson, because he was the one who changed it from being a letter that was sent to Congress to being this performative speech that we have now. Uh, I will say the State of the Union is uh, troubled. It, I think it absolutely is trouble. But I think, as Dan pointed out, there are um, there are some good things to point to. It is not, you know, no president is going to come out and say that the State of the Union is troubled. You're going to get the same, and this is to Sam's point as well, of how dumb this whole process is, that you know the president is going to come out and say the State of our Union is strong. I mean, it, it, it could be burning down around him and he would still say the State of the Union is strong, much like Kevin Bacon at the end of Animal House screaming, all is well, all is well, nothing to see here. Um, but I think the reality is that it is troubled. It is challenged right now. And there are questions in a way that I don't know that we've really encountered since probably uh, the time that Jimmy Carter was in office of a, a national feeling that the future might be worse than the past has been. Um, now, we know how that ended up resolving itself. Um, in it intertwines back to the history of the end of the Cold War that we talked about in the beginning of this podcast. But I think that's the reality. The one thing that I'm going to be looking for from the State of the Union is I think it is finally the time. I'll make a prediction here and we can come back and you can hold me to it if I'm wrong. Um, You're going to watch in real time as the Biden administration takes the off ramps on most COVID policy. It is going to get returned to the states. Uh, March 18th is the date that you should pay attention to because that is the date that the federal mask mandate on public transportation and air travel is set to expire. I think they're going to let it expire. I don't think it is getting extended. And it is going to be interesting to see how this is received because so much of the reason why Biden has not taken these off-ramps that have been offered to him so many times is because he's more afraid of the far left part of his base than he thinks he will benefit from doing something that actually will be popular. And it is a quintessential example of the problem with our politics that most politicians, if they're feeling a challenge, it is from a primary, not from a general election. But I think that is the thing to watch for is a dramatic change in COVID policy. I think you already saw it in the CDC revising its masking guidance for counties all around the country. It's the kind of thing that uh, if you really wanted to be cynical about it, one could interpret it as that follow the science was something they truly believed. They just left the word political science out of that whole saying. So we will come back in a week and see if I'm right about that prediction. But we'll call it a wrap there. Thank you for listening to Act and Unwind. If you're listening to this podcast on our website, please look in the show notes. There you will find a link where you can subscribe directly to this show or just search Acton Unwind on your favorite podcast app. Also, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, five-star reviews only, or leave us a question or a comment. If you leave us a really good question, we would love to address it on this program. So leave a question there, leave a comment. If you say something really nice about us, we'll read it on the show. If you say something really cruel about us, we may still read it on the show. There's only one way for you to find out. And it'll also help more people find this program. Thanks to Sam. Thanks to Dan for the Acton Institute. This is Eric Cohn. 
We'll see you next week.